0: to attempt their names because <laughs> I would butcher it. So uh, ask me later and I'll, I'll try to remember who they are for you. But uh, we are missionaries with a mission organization. Is that cool if I like don't stand back here? I'm short and I feel like I need a step stool back there. Uh, to see you and for you to see me. But we're missionaries with a group called Rural Home Missionary Association, RHMA for short. Uh, We've been missionaries with RHMA for a little over 18 years now. Uh, We've served uh, in a mission field in Wyoming and then here, and now we are in southeast Idaho. We've been there for, we're in our 12th year, and uh, we moved there in order to plant a church in Mormon country. For those of you who were in Sunday school this morning, this might be a bit of a rerun, uh, but it'll be okay. It'll, it'll help it sink in a little bit more and just, just uh, help you become really one with what we're trying to do. But uh, we are in southeast Idaho. In the back there, there's kind of a, a missionary highlight thing that whoever put that together, thank you. You did a fabulous job. That's better than anything I could have ever done. Uh, So thank you for doing that. But on the back, there's a map, and you can kind of see where Montpelier, Idaho is. It's 30 miles north of the Utah border, 30 miles west of the Wyoming border. We're right there in the bottom corner, and we are in a a small town, as I shared earlier. Our entire county is only 6,000 people. Uh, Our closest Walmart is an hour and a half away. Our closest McDonald's, an hour and a half away. Uh, We have two stoplights in our entire, not town, our entire county has two stoplights. And that's where we are, and that's where we've been. Um, We have uh, learned a lot over the last decade plus about what it means to try to plant a church in a small Mormon community community. And uh, we started by moving into the valley. We rented a building, and we started uh, trying to get the word out, to make relationships, invite people to our church. Uh, As I shared this morning, I guess it is still the morning. I'm going to try to just stop saying that. Are we okay with that? Like, we're friends here now, right? We'll just have a conversation. But we, we met at night so that we could give Mormon folks an opportunity to go to their ward in the morning and then like Nicodemus and John 3 sneak away and meet Jesus at night. And uh, that that was a good idea. But it really didn't work in a community like that. So after 5 years we let our building go and we have spent the last 6 years just trying to incarnate our faith amongst our friends and neighbors. And uh, you got a picture here. This this is what our ministry looks like. Uh, We have come to the conviction that you have to plant the gospel before you can start a church. So we have been planting gospel seeds uh, very intentionally in the lives of people around us for the last six years. And. um, this has been uh it's been exciting. It's been challenging. Wow, there's a little bit of a step right there. Nobody told me about that. I know. I'll probably do it again. But uh it's it's been it's been challenging for our family in in a number of ways, and probably the, the greatest challenge that we have faced uh as a missionary family in this part of the world is the fact that we are alone we parachute planted in in the bear lake valley of idaho uh, we didn't know anybody and we didn't know anything other than we wanted to take the gospel to this place and it turns out as we look back that we parachute planted without a parachute and it has been painful and it has been challenging in ways that that I don't even know if I could have language for this morning. Uh, but last year, we realized that if we are going to continue to have any kind of of a ministry in this place, that we have to do it differently. We cannot continue to do what we're doing the way that we've been trying to do it. And there is a church, again, if you have one of those uh, maps in the back there of where we live, you'll see another place. Uh, it's, it's Preston, Idaho. It's an hour to the west of us over a mountain. It's just the next county over. Uh, there's a church there that has kind of this at least 60-year history. Uh, 40 years into the first 40 years of that 60-year history, there was a man who had moved to, to Preston, Idaho uh, for work and while he was there, he wanted to, to be part of a, a church. But he realized there's no Christian church in Preston, Idaho. There's just Mormon churches. So he started praying that God would start a church there. And he prayed literally for the next 40 years that God would bring a church to this community. And then 40 years into that praying, uh, God brought a, a church planning family there and they started a church 20 years ago. Uh, what's interesting about Preston? Uh, here's here's the church. It's right there on Grace or er, on on the main street. Uh, Grace Fellowship Church started 20 years ago, and this is a church that we've had uh, connection with for some time. Uh, neat thing about Preston. anybody anybody familiar with Napoleon Dynamite? <laughs> Preston, Idaho, is the home of Napoleon Dynamite. The writers of that actually uh, grew up in Preston. It was shot in Preston. That's Preston High School. Uh, the dojo scene, that's a, 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 a building that the church has used for Sunday school up in the dojo. So if you're a fan of Napoleon Dynamite, this is Preston. If you are not a fan of Napoleon Dynamite, this is Preston. This is where the church is. And this is a church that we've known for, for a decade now. And we started having a conversation with them a year ago. And we said, what would it look like if our family... Stop trying to be a Lone Ranger missionary family by ourselves. And we join you all in what you're doing and allow you to join it, us in what we're doing. And, and to make a long story short, uh, January 15th of this year, the church unanimously voted to bring us on uh, to, to join them in partnership and trying to reach this region of our world with the gospel. It's still after 20 years, it's still a mission church. It's not self-sustaining. Uh, None of those things. It's got another missionary pastor there. But we are going to begin to work together in community uh, to be a gospel outpost for this region. Um, I want to show you, I don't know, do we have sound?
1: Real quick. Yeah, it's 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 been a long path. This is um, a
0: testimony from this Easter. I just want to show you real quick what God is doing in this place.
1: Let me find my scriptures. Okay. there they are. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been a long path. Um, God is good. He's amazing. Praise God. I. I've only been a Christian for a year. My whole life, I believed I was a Christian. I thought I was living a Christian life. Um, raised LDS as well. Um, Served sort of a mission in Lithuania. Got home. Married my wife, Elmira. Um, we've had nine kids since. Um, they have a good relationship. Yeah. <laughs> A great one. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And uh, anyways, um, God's amazing. He's, I, as I've been reflecting, been asked to come up here and talk on my path, that the Father has led me to the Son. And as a new Christian, only a year old, I realize how good God is, how amazing he is. how loving he is. Somebody that been in the darkest abyss and had no hope, believed in the wrong God, the wrong Jesus, Mm -hmm. a conditional God that loved me according to my ability to keep these false commandments. That he in his absolute atoning mercy plucked me out of death, sin, and hell by no doing of my own. Yes. And that to see his absolute undying love in my life and the impact it's had on my family and the trust that I have in him that I never thought could ever be possible, never imagined it. Growing up, I there's times I hated God. I didn't know who he was. There's times I didn't believe in God. I didn't know who he was. And if I can give anything to the world, it would be that hope in Jesus Christ that's been given to me. Mm. Not any doing of my own. Amen. Amen. And the one scripture I want to share... Well, I had three. (laughs) But I realize I better keep it short. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, ESV version. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the most beautiful thing about this is it's not on me. It's completely on him. Praise God. Yes. Yeah. Amen.
0: I wanted to show that quick testimony. This past Easter, just a few weeks ago, we had three people who were baptized who had come to faith in Christ out of Mormonism within the last year. What God is doing in this place is everything that we have been praying and planning and working towards in the valley that we've been in but we've not we've not seen the gospel fruit that is happening here in Preston. And we were like, "Lord, is there any way that we could stay in this region?" We we've learned to love the culture. We've learned to speak the language. And we're like, "God, we would love to stay in this region." And the Lord has opened an opportunity for us to join what he is doing in this place, so that it could become an epicenter for the gospel, it's the heart of this church again, twenty years old here's a here's a picture, maybe whoa, wrong button there was a light this is This is just from last November. So many of these people are first generation Christians, many who have come to faith out of mormonism like like that gentleman amen he who had served a, a LDS mission, all those things, God is doing a work in this place. And it's the heart of this church to then go out into the surrounding little rural communities and and take the gospel there. So many of these people are coming from uh, little towns all around in northern Utah and sou- southern Idaho. So uh, that's that's Just to give you a quick picture and kind of an idea of what we are, our ministry, can can I just share with you in a nutshell what our ministry is? Did you hear what what he said in his testimony? He said, there were times I hated God, but I didn't know who he was. There were times I I didn't believe. It's because I didn't know who he was. Our ministry is simply to be in the valley and tell people who he is. And that's what we're doing. We've been doing that for the last... 11 plus years and we're going to continue to do that as the lord uh, gives us breath and and this is this is your ministry as well this church has been a gospel partner of ours for a a long time now and this is what god is doing in your own backyard so we just wanted to share that we wanted to thank you for your ministry to our family over all of these years Um, but i got to confess to you It it hasn't been easy. It's fun to share a testimony like that. It's fun to share a picture of what God is doing. But but I'm just here to tell you, uh, it has not always been easy. The past 11 years for our family seems to be a series of unmet expectations. And I'll I'll share a little bit more in a minute about all that. But I wonder, have you... Have you ever been discouraged because your expectations didn't match reality? Have you ever been in that place? I remember when we were living here in Brighton, our oldest son, who will be 20 this year, was a little son, and he used to play Little League. And their Little League team had the privilege they were invited to Coors Field they were going to parade around the warning track at Coors Field he was so excited he had his little baseball uniform on he looked so cute and just a couple of hours before he was supposed to go parade with his team around Coors Field all of a sudden the there were all these rain delays and then they decided to just cancel the game and he was crushed he was so disappointed because he was not able to do the thing he was looking forward to doing. How many of you know that sometimes life rains on our parades? And it's not just little people, is it? It, Sometimes it's like as you get older, you have these expectations. Again, uh, we've got kids that are getting into that age where uh, the next big parts of their life are big parts of life, like marriage and career and and, and I know a lot of people, maybe you even in this room, as you were looking forward to, to starting your own life, away from mom and dad, and you were uh, you, know, you, you fall in love and you, you get married and you're planning on having a family. And then you discover the word "infertility." And no matter what you try, no matter, no matter what you do, it just doesn't seem to work. And, and you have all of these dreams of raising a fa- family begin to evaporate before your eyes. But it's not, just, it's not just young life and young love. Many of us know people who are getting ready for retirement. I mean, they work 40, 50, 60 years. And they're like, finally, I'm going to be able to rest and do some things that I've always enjoyed doing. They start planning out what the, the rest of their life will look like. Only to in an instant have all of those plans change when you get the diagnosis from the doctor. That all of a sudden, retirement's not going to look like you thought it was going to look like. And those expectations go unmet, which leads to, to great discouragement. I love this picture here. It says disappointment. Because sometimes when you're, ex- what you're expecting, when you're expecting something, it just doesn't happen. I love looking at this picture and this kid's like, so this is life. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? And because we've all been there, I'm confident that we we understand and can relate to the people in our text this morning in Haggai chapter 2. I just found out before the message that Brian has a PhD in Old Testament, so I'm like, man, I should have probably done something out of the New Testament, <laughs> but it's a little late for that. Um, but But in Haggai chapter 2, we find a group of people that also find themselves extremely discouraged because their expectation didn't match reality. Uh, I hope you know this by now if if you've been around the church for very long. If not, can I just introduce you to this, this cool idea that's, that we're just having so much fun introducing these first-generation Christians to. And it's this, this, this idea, and it's more than an idea, it's a truth, that one of the main arteries that run from the heart of God throughout all of the story of the Bible is that he wants to dwell with humanity, that, that God wants to dwell with people. He's not like one of these pagan gods far-off that, you know, doesn't want to interact with humans and humans are there just to be at their beck and call. This is a God who, who just wants to be with the people that he made. That in his presence is the fullness of joy. Like where God is, that's where we want to be. That's where life is. That's where joy is. That's where wholeness is. And God set this whole thing up so that he could be with humanity. Eden in the beginning was like this this temple area. It's it's where heaven and earth met and God walked with man. And then, I mean, you know the story. You get to the third page of the story and all of a sudden all of that falls apart, doesn't it? as mankind, because of their disobedience, trying to find life apart from their life giver, is now exiled from the garden, exiled from God's presence. But it's not without hope, right? There's this, this, this hope in Genesis 3.15 that one day God is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he's going to make all things right. And that hope develops as you continue to read the story. And when God delivers the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. In that great exodus, what does he have them do? He meets them at a mountain and he says, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And he and he sets up not only uh, kind of this covenant relationship with them and these covenant responsibilities so that they could shine as lights to the world and that the other nations could come to this great God and also be with him. But he also has them set up this tent, a, a tabernacle, a place where once again, heaven and earth can meet, a place where God and man can commune. And then later the tabernacle becomes the temple which was the, the centerpiece to, to Israel's life. It's interesting, even in Numbers, how God has them camp when they move their camp. He has them camp around the tabernacle because God wants to be the center of his people. He wants to be the center of their life. But how many of you know that, that the children of Israel were not always faithful We're not always obedient, didn't always keep the covenant. And God says, because my house has become defiled, my house has become dirty. I'm moving out. I mean, you don't want to live in a dirty house. Neither does God. And there's just this descriptive scene in the book of Ezekiel where where the Shekinah glory of God lifts up above the temple and then moves out of town. And you know what you have left when you have a temple without the presence of God? You have a building. And that's what was left in Israel. When God moved out, he allowed the Babylonians to move in. And he sent his people into exile once again. It's it's Genesis 1, 2, 3 repeating itself. And, And they go into exile in Babylon, but not without hope. Because while they were in exile, the prophets were speaking of a day that would come. A day that would come when God would restore his people, would renew all things the way that they always were meant to be in the beginning. And as they were being disciplined in Babylon, they always looked forward to the day when God would redeem them and God would restore them. And he would make all things new. That's the hope that they had. And by the time we get to the, our story this morning, uh, these people are post-exile. They are now leaving Egypt and they are returning to their homeland. And they begin to build, rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. Again, this was so important to the life of Israel that, that this was the main feature of them as a nation, is to have God in their their presence, have God at the center. So they begin to to rebuild the temple. But it doesn't take long as they're in this building project for them to become discouraged. For them to have this expectation that goes unmet. Again, Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 1, says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the remnant of the people. Verse 3 says, Who was left among you who saw this house, this temple, in its former Glory. And I want you to see the question God asks his people now through Haggai. He says, how does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? Here they are. They're excited. They're coming out of exile. They're believing that God has, has had this this. Uh, redemptive restorative judgment on his people and now they're on the other side of that now they get to come back to their land now God is going to make all things new and as they start to build the temple they're like wait a minute there's something wrong here this there's something really really wrong Did, did did we get the right blueprints what's going on here and, and they start to, the, the older generation who had seen this first temple, uh, Ezra says that they began to weep as the temple's going up. Some people were, were crying with great joy and others were crying with great grief. Because this temple was nothing like they expected the restored temple to be on the other side of exile. The temple that Ezekiel talked about was way more grand, way more glorious than what it was that they were building now. In fact, this one didn't even compare to the old one. It's not even a carbon copy of what was. It's less than what it was. It it lacked all of its remarkable features. It, It lacked that Shekinah glory of God that departed before the exile. And these people are like, what is going on? And God said, I want, you to, I want you to look at this temple. How does it look in your eyes? Does it appear as nothing to you? You see, these people had a vision problem. As the walls went up, their hearts began to sink because it wasn't what they expected. And they looked at it and they said, is this, is this it? They had a vision problem. Aren't you glad we're not like that? You're like, heavens no, I've never tried to build a temple. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But like, as you look at, what it is that you are doing in life and you're like man I just want to serve the king and advance his kingdom and as you are giving yourself to that work you look back and you're like is that it I could have sworn it was going to be so much better than this by this point I told you earlier that our 11 years of ministry has not been as exciting as it is in this moment Uh, jessica my wife says it best she says i always knew it was going to be difficult i didn't realize it was going to be this slow and when we uh over the last 11 years it's like is is this it uh, several years ago, Jessica and I had an opportunity to go to Israel for three weeks. I was working on a master's degree. They're like, you need more credits. They, they said, you can take, like, statistics or you can go to Israel. I'm like, let me think. Sign me up. So we went to Israel for three weeks. And the last week we were there, I had to take a, a land of Israel. And then I took a biblical archaeology class. How cool is that? But it wasn't just, like, read books about it. We actually went on a dig site. And we got to dig in the dirt of the holy land. And my wife how pregnant were you? She's like pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a champion. And it was it was it was so cool the idea that we would get to go to this place called Tel Gezer and if you've ever been to Israel you know that Israel's a bunch of these things called tells. It's like a a layered cake. One civilization built on top of another on top of another on top of another. And and uh We were digging in this place, but our job, I I had these great visions that we would go there with like the little paintbrushy things and we would be brushing stuff away and and finding cool stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. There were people at that dig site the time we were there doing all of that stuff. I mean, they were finding amulets. They found a dead body the week we were there and they're like, you can't tell anybody because then we're going to get people coming and raiding this site. So we didn't tell anybody. I think I can tell you now because I just told you. But (laughs) we found a dead body. Like they found bones. They found a skeleton. They're finding all this cool stuff. But you know what we did? You know what our job was? We were moving the discard pile, the discarded dirt from here to here. That was our job. All week long, we took the dirt from here that they've already sifted through and we just moved it over here. <laughs> I don't even think you get a Boy Scout badge for that. <laughs> and it was a lot of really hard work and really no visible glory. And as we look back on our last 11 years in ministry, it feels like all we've been doing is moving dirt from here to hear, never hitting that pay dirt that we're looking for. In 2012, the first summer we were out there, a uh, youth group from my home church in Frisco, Colorado, just west of here, they brought a youth group out, kind of like churches normally do. You know, you bring a youth group out, you do a VBS and, and it's grand time, and you get all the kids from the community that come out and, and they get to hear the gospel, and we we... Got the word out. We canvassed the community. The kids came out. They canvassed the community. They started their VBS. You know how many kids showed up in our little Mormon town? Zero. The whole week, except for my kids. They had to be there. That has been what our ministry has been like up to this point. And we went in there with these great expectations that we were going to go and and we were going to see people come to faith in Christ and we were going to be established a, a, a vibrant gospel community and as we look at our ministry we're like is this it is this it and God says to his people he says I want you to look at the work you're doing does it seem like nothing In your eyes. How many of you know that when you're going through it, we can become really myopic? We can be extremely short sighted. Uh, This guy right here, his name's Philip Barlow, not the Mormon scholar Philip Barlow, if you're into Mormon scholarship like I am. Not that guy. This is South African artist Philip Barlow. And you can see some of his, his work there. He likes to take a camera and he goes to the cities and he goes to the beaches and he takes pictures and then he paints oil painting uh, versions of those pictures. And you're like, it's kind of fuzzy. Yeah, that's what he does. Th- these are some of his, his works right here. He's really big into painting things that are out of focus. And I love these paintings because it reminds me of what life looks like when I take my contacts out. I mean, I am like blind when I take my contacts out. My youngest daughter, Eden, who's five, she loves to come into the bathroom when I'm taking my contacts out. And she goes, Dad, how many fingers am I holding? up? I'm like, six. She's like, nope. And I put my glasses on. She's like, how many? Two. You got it. So we we just have this little game. But that's what life looks like when you're extremely nearsighted. Like you can only see what is right here. And anything a little bit out in the distance is just fuzzy. And God's people, Israel, as they're building this, this temple, they can see what is right in front of them. But everything else seems pretty fuzzy to them. And God says, how does this look in your eyes? What if God sees things differently than we do? I, I think that's the question he's trying to stir up in his people. What if I see things differently than you do? This looks like. Nothing in your eyes. But what if there's something else going on here? And I love what what God does for his people with this vision problem in Haggai 2. Through the prophet Haggai, he gives them a corrective lens, doesn't he? I mean, when you're extremely nearsighted and you can only see what's right here and everything else looks fuzzy, what do you need? You need a corrective lens, right? You, you need something that will help you to see with, with sharpness what really is that you can't see with your natural eye. And what God does for his people here in Haggai too is he gives them a corrective lens. Look again, if you will, at verse 6. It says, For the Lord of hosts says this, Once more... In a little while, God says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And I'm going to shake all of the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God gives two statements here, that, that one here and one in verse 4, where he says that they should continue to work for he is with them. He gives them two statements to renew their perspective. He says, work for I am with you. I love that work for I'm with you. I I believe this speaks of God's presence. They are not alone. God is with them. But, But it speaks to more than just God's presence. It speaks to God's power when he says, work for I'm with you. God is telling them that I am working in your work. I love how Moses said in Psalm 90 and says, "Lord, establish the work of our hands, that God is not only with them, but He is working through them." But I also think that this idea of "I am with you" means something else profound, and it, it not only speaks of God's presence, it not only speaks of God's power, it speaks of God's pleasure. Right before they went into Babylonian captivity, God said, I am not with you. In fact, I'm leaving. And now he's saying, I'm with you. I know it doesn't seem much as you you walk in obedience to me, but I am pleased with you. The second corrective lens that God gives is in verse 6, where he says, once more in a little while. Not only does God see things differently than we do, but what if God's timing is different than ours? I shared with you earlier this church that we're involved with now, an hour to the west. It took somebody praying 40 years, an entire generation, before God visibly did what they were asking. Not that God wasn't always working, but it took 40 years for that prayer to be visibly answered. It's been over 2,500 years since God made this statement here in Haggai about shaking the nations and bringing all the glory in. It's been over 2,500 years. Uh, How many of you know that sometimes God's little while seems like a long time? When God says, in a little while... We're like my daughter Eden. She's not here, so I could talk about her all morning. But we, we're on this road trip now. We, we just got, we're on our way home from Illinois. O- overall, we'll be like 2,700 miles. We didn't even get out of our own town before. She's like, Dad, are we there yet? <laughs> are we there? No, no, honey, we're not. When will we be there? We'll be there in a little while. <laughs> we show up three days later. Isn't it true? Sometimes God's little while seems like a long time. And these people are working in their building. And God said, in a little while. You just keep doing what you're doing. I am with you. I am with you presently. I'm with you powerfully. I'm, w- I'm with you. My pleasure is on you. You keep working because in a, in a little while. I will shake the heavens and the earth. And I will bring the glory in. The work the Israelites were doing may not have seemed very impressive. It may have seemed futile to them, but that's because it was the work wasn't finished. How many of you know that few things make much sense when they're only half done? And these people were part of what God was doing in the grand scheme of things to bring about redemption and restoration to the world that he promised back in Genesis and then later through Abraham and repeated these promises throughout the story. They were just playing their part in what God was doing in the grand scheme of things. And it may not have made sense to them because God wasn't finished. The temple they were building was only part of God's overall plan. And even though when they built that structure, God's glory, the Shekinah glory that once came when they dedicated the first temple was not there the second time. How many of you know that God's glory returned? This time it was in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter one says that the word became flesh and took up residence among us and we observed his glory the glory of the only begotten from the Father, and that glory was full of grace and truth. The Shekinah glory returned in the incarnation, but it wasn't as visible that not everybody saw it. And it was through what Jesus did in allowing his body, the temple, to be destroyed on a cross so that there could be resurrection life That we wouldn't be stuck in exile anymore to our sin and to death. And one day, one day, Jesus will return again and he's going to shake the place and all of the glory that the universe will be filled with the glory of God, that we will be with him. He will be with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. The whole world will be his temple. And until then, I think the message that Haggai was trying to get to his people and God wants to get to us today. Until then, we should be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Why? Because we know that our labor is not in vain. Will you pray with me? Father, life is hard, but you are good. Father, I ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see. We become so myopic, we become so nearsighted, that somehow we think that the gospel story is creation and then fall. But that would not be good news. But that you loved this world so much, you loved us so much that you entered into the drama of history, the drama of humanity in order to redeem us and one day restore all things to the way it's to be. So, Father, give us eyes to see as we go through our lives seeking to be citizens of your kingdom whether we pastor churches or paint cars or cook macaroni and cheese for our toddlers, help us to see that your work is not just the extraordinary things, but also the ordinary things, that they too are acts of God, that you are pleased in these things. God, give us faith to believe. It is so easy to believe the voices of our culture, that we're wasting our times, that that we're nobody, that we're failures, that our lives are insignificant. Father, give us faith to believe. And Lord, give us hope To press on. Knowing that it will all be worth it one day. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.